Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Anne Pettifort to the podcast. Anne is a UK-based analyst of the global financial system and director of policy research and macroeconomics, a network of economists concerned with Keynesian monetary theory and policies. Anne is an influential political economist with a record of achieving real change in public policy, especially in relation to sovereign debt. She's been a strong proponent of a Green New Deal for many years, and her work is now focused largely on the relationship between economic growth and climate. So thank you very much, Anne, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Pleasure. Thank you, Fergal. Excellent. So um, can you maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about your background and introduce uh, your work, some of the, the key themes that you're exploring as well at the moment in your work? Well, my work has mainly been on the issue of, uh, I began really in the field of sovereign debt, working on the sovereign debt of the poorest countries. And then I had three years at the New Economics Foundation, where I tried to understand why countries had got into the very high levels of debt that they'd got into after the 1970s, whereas before that, there hadn't been high levels of debt. Um, and... Um, and that got me into money and monetary policy and theory. And it is now my obsession, essentially, really. And the relationship, and for me, so what happened then was I wrote a book predicting the financial crisis, first in 2003, uh, The Real World Economic Outlook. And then in, I edited that book. And then in 2006, I wrote a book called The Coming First World Debt Crisis. And that sort of fell like a lead balloon at the beginning, but pretty well um, catapulted me into the whole debate around the money monetary system uh, that emerged after the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008. Um, And just at that point in 2007-8, I was involved with a group of environmentalists um, and economists on a project called the Green New Deal. We worked together over the winter of 2007 and 8 produce a report, to produce a report, which we argued would tackle the triple threats that we faced. The first one, one of those that we had uh, faced and that we were wrong about, in fact, was peak oil. And the second was the credit crunch and then the climate crunch. And we we argued that these were all integrated and that we needed to have a plan for a new deal which acknowledged the integration of the economic with the ecological, so to speak, and looked for ways in which to resolve this and to prepare for the future. Um, so that was published in the uh, in July 2008. It you know, it, it, it gained a bit of traction, but on the whole was then eclipsed by the great financial crisis. Um, and then until quite recently when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York won a Democratic primary and then a Democratic congressional seat and catapulted the issue, if you like, into uh, the, the global comments sphere and so that's where now I am um, where and basically my interest is in 
the relationship between economic policy and and the climate. And in particular, I'm at the moment working on a book um, called, which will essentially be about financing a Green New Deal, in which I will be arguing that it's possible indeed for us to finance a Green New Deal to raise the sorts of sums of money needed to transform the economy away from its dependence on fossil fuels. Well, brilliant. A very interesting uh, uh, and prophetic uh, your work has been. And I'm sure later on, maybe uh, have an opportunity to look to the future a little bit and see what you think is on the cards ahead of of time again. Um, Now, um, uh, areas I'm very interested in talking to you about, uh, clearly the the monetary policy, as you mentioned, also uh, this Green New Deal and and also really uh, this question about uh, financing it and so forth, uh, um, which I think is a very important one um so um hopefully we'll have a chance to to, to cover those um and I, I guess um something that would be helpful uh, at the beginning is to understand in what way introducing and thinking about monetary policy monetary the monetary side of things finance and debt when you take these uh elements into account what 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 does this uh, allow us to understand about our the, some of the, the the current crises we have at the moment? I mean, if we taking uh, I guess as a base in, in some sense ideas about economic growth and the ideas of the you know the environmental impact of what you might call overgrowth or so forth in in, in recent decades. What what does when you start to look at uh, the, the the credit economy and I guess what some people call the fire industry or the uh, finance and uh, insurance and real estate and and so forth that have been growing? I, I'm just wondering what kind of areas do we do do, do you, you you see that you wouldn't otherwise see and and and, and maybe I mean, it's a very big question and maybe some of the things that that would weighs out or ways of dealing with the problems that we mightn't otherwise be aware. Well, it's simply this, that um, there is a very strong correlation between our issuance or the the issuance by private banks of credit and the price that is placed on that credit, which is a way of talking about the rate of interest on credit, and the growth, A, then in consumption, and B, uh, the extraction of assets from the earth to repay that credit. That's really, those really are the key points that I, I want to make. So we've, before 1971 and the deregulation of credit here in Britain and also in the United States, and deregulation had in fact, had in fact begun before that. But, but in 1971 here in Britain, we passed a law or a, 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 a Actually, it was actually a regulation called Competition and Credit Control. And effectively, what that did was to remove ceilings on the amount of credit the banks could issue, and in particular, also the direction in which that credit was aimed. And so before 1971, banks were effectively uh, prevented from lending for speculative purposes, for speculation, for speculation on an existing asset. So, for example, right now, banks overwhelmingly lend for investment in London property. 
uh, or in property in general. And that is speculative investment in that it's investment not to create a new asset, but to invest in an existing asset in the hope that the price of that asset is going to rise forever. Uh, and that's that's a gamble because we know that London prices, house prices will not rise forever. Um, and before 1971, that kind of investment was frowned upon and regulated against. And secondly, before 1971, uh, and indeed uh, as part of the Bretton Woods arrangement, banks were obliged to keep interest rates low. Um, and there were various regulations to limit uh, the, the rate of interest on loans, not just here, but also in the United States. These regulations were also lifted. And for me, the rate of interest on debt is an incredibly important economic uh, concept, but also it has importance for the ecosystem. And that is this, that in order to repay debts that are, that are rising, if you like, in value, we need to extract assets, not just from human labor, but also from the ecosystem. Um, to put it very crudely, and I think about this often in sovereign debt terms, for Brazil to repay her foreign debt, which actually also has to be paid in a different currency, in, in the dollar invariably, and also at interest rates that effectively are compounded over time, um, that requires Brazil to strip her forests and fish her seas and, and find all kinds of assets to, to, if you like, repay the returns on that borrowing. And the returns on that borrowing are the rate of interest. Right, right. Why, why is that? Why can't they, they presumably they could just as easily go for a, you know, low carbon model, they could go for, you know, some kind of manufacturing model, or what is the necessary uh, connection between resources and uh, interest? Well, the point about about credit is that you know there's a requirement to pay more than just what you've borrowed you've got to repay the interest as well and the higher the rate of interest on the loan the more is required of in the way of returns on that loan and the more has to be done to earn the income necessary to repay that debt um and and that means so before 19 before the 1970s Interest rates, or for the period of the Bretton Woods, and thanks to the advice of John Maynard Keynes, interest rates were kept low. We know that interest rates are incredibly exploitative when they're high. They they exploit both human labour and um, and 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 ecological assets because they require a rate of return over a long period of time, often, which um, just means that people have to work harder and have to extract more in order to repay the debt and it's that uh, dynamic which uh, which is fundamental to debt which um, has uh, exacerbated in my view the the climate crisis now there are two things that before the 1970s countries were did exactly what you've suggested which is that they didn't borrow 
on the international capital markets. They lived within, if you like, the, their means, within the means of, of what was available in their own countries. And, um, and they were encouraged to do so. Keynes was very clear that money ought to be national and, and, and not global. And, and, and certainly borrowing should be national within the um, the currency uh, in which you would earn. I mean, if you if you if you use a currency domestically, you earn income in that currency, and if you borrow in that currency, then the income needed to repay those loans is sustainable because it's your own currency. But if you borrow internationally, uh, then you've got to repay in somebody else's or in some other country's uh, um, currency, and and that together with the interest. Um, really makes the burden of debt repayment higher. So before 1971, we didn't have a globalized, internationalized financial system. Our financial systems were domestically managed, and there was a degree of policy autonomy for countries and for people within those countries. That changed when we internationalized the financial system and we allowed bankers and financial institutions to detach themselves from domestic regulation. And it's that process of globalization, essentially, which has massively increased consumption, as we know, but mainly it's increased borrowing. And if you think about it, Fergal, and I'm, I'm getting old now, when I was young, I, I had no access to credit cards. Um, and, I, and, you know, and that's only 30, 40 years ago. Um, credit cards were something that my children benefited from. And not when I say benefited, they had access to it before they'd even left university, before they had even begun to earn any income. They were having credit cards thrown at them. But when I was young, that was not possible. Equally, when I applied first for a mortgage, I had to go and see the bank manager and go through a really quite laborious process of checking and cross-checking that I would have the capacity to pay. By the time my son came to go apply for a mortgage, then the process of applying for the mortgage was a much simpler one and, and effectively was an agreement with someone at the end of a telephone line. So what happened was that before the 1970s, um, credit was... Uh, carefully managed. And I think the word managed is what I want. And after the 1970s, it was sort of allowed to run amok. So now it is possible. And we see that there's a correlation between access to credit and consumption. People never used to go shopping on the international capital markets in, in on eBay or on Amazon for stuff. Um, you would you would be shopping domestically at home and so on. Um, and it wouldn't be that easy uh, to buy stuff. You know, we had higher purchase, uh, if you remember. But on the whole, you had to save up to have uh, to buy what you wanted. Um, and you couldn't just expect to be able to – I'll never forget a NatWest uh, poster which, um, uh, which boasted that what NatWest enabled you to do is to take the waiting – out of wanting. And so people no longer saved and, and, and nurtured resources in order to invest. They simply borrowed. And it's massive transformation, which I think 
there's led to more consumption. That's interesting because, and I say it's, 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 I guess, it's an Anglosphere thing in the first instance with the deregulation coming out of America as well and the yes. free markets, orthodoxy, and ideas and so forth. So, does that mean that there are examples of economies around the world where, where they haven't adopted this kind of liberal attitude to finance and debt and have significantly differing consumption patterns? Well, um, it's hard to find any country now that isn't uh, on, you know, engaged in this process. And think of China and their huge um, equivalent uh, platforms to that of Amazon and so on. But when the crisis broke in 2007, I had been looking at Germany and France, for example, and it was very, very interesting. In France, people on the whole did not have credit cards. Credit cards didn't take off in France and I don't know what the situation is today, but before the crisis, the easy access to credit in France was not the same as it is here. And in Germany, the same applied. People were more prudent, if you like, about their borrowing, and, and it was less easy to borrow. And, and for example, in Germany, there was a rule, which is that the value of a house had to be calculated on uh on a on, on on a range of prices over a period of time so you couldn't do what we were doing in britain which is to throw money at a property which inflates the price of that property and then call that the value of the property in germany you had to look at today's price but also the what had what the value of that property had been over periods of time and only then could the mortgage be offered against that valuation are you with me? So there was a more conservative valuation of that asset than we were doing here. We were throwing money at property, watching it rise, valuing it at a higher price, and then borrowing more money uh, against that higher price, if, if that makes sense to you. So there were economies like those in Europe which who were more conservative. But having said that, that, that applies to households in those countries. What we know is that the banks in those countries were already engaged in the international financial markets. And in fact, the first bank to go down in the 2000 and when the, the crisis first broke in 2007 was a German bank that had been playing around in American subprime mortgage uh, sectors. So it's very hard to tell now um, which of the – and on the whole, it tends to be the poorest countries that couldn't borrow on international capital markets that, in a way, were more sustainable and less less damaged by the crisis. Very, very, very interesting. And you mentioned the cost of, of, of money, I guess, which is you know yes. the interest rate and so forth. Um, and clearly, in the last decade, at least, we've seen that drop substantially. Uh-huh. And on a on a uh, seemingly ongoing basis, and I'm just wondering about that, and I'm wondering also about um, maybe I mean it's a big topic. Also, just finally on on, on this before maybe moving on uh, is is this question of Islamic finance have a different approach? Are there lessons there in terms yes. of how how we might approach things? Well, first of all, on your first point, it is the case that for central banks, the rate of interest has fallen. But you and I don't borrow from the central bank. Only big financial institutions and banks and um, and the governments and governments borrow from the central bank at the very low rates that we're seeing there. So we have seen that those who have access to central bank resources have managed to get loads of credit and have splashed that 
on the sorts of things that they invest in, which are mainly assets. But for the rest of us and for the real world, um, Fergal, interest rates are not low in real terms. You must always think of interest rates relative to inflation. And I can assure you that on your credit card, the interest rate is probably about 28%. Um, mortgages, mortgages have been low and they are, at least in the UK, Everybody pays the bank rate and every individual mortgage is set according to the risk profile of the borrower. And so so there's no way that we can argue that, that interest rates are really low, as low as they are as central bank rates. There is no doubt that they've come down from the levels they were at before the crisis. But I'm, I just do want to challenge this notion that everybody is paying what the central bank, what the bank rate is, because it's not that case. And, and, and if we have excessive credit creation right now, that's because we still have easy credit that the, the, the regulatory authorities, the central banks and the treasuries have not regulated the issuance of credit. The banks are doing as much as they did before. Indeed, they're doing more. We all know that the level of total debt relative to global GDP is higher by 11 points than it was before the crisis. Uh, it's something like nearly two and a half times our total income. And, you know, that's higher than it was before the crisis. So very little has changed. And so there's a distinction to be made between easy credit, in, in other words, it's just easy to get a loan, and dear credit, which is that the price of that loan in real terms is high. And, and secondly, on your Islamic finance point, yes, I've had a lot of, I've been working very closely with Islamic bankers. And that's because the, the principles of Islamic banking are for very, very low real rates. Um, but in reality, many Islamic banks are operating um, in a way that echo and, and mimic the Western banking system, mainly because they're under pressure from Western banks too. Now, also, we, we talked about this particular period. We've been focused a little bit on the last 10 years and the fallout from the economic crash. And I guess uh, the financial crash, I guess one of the insights as well from that uh, has been that the orthodoxy of what you might say monetary policy of has maybe, I don't know whether it's been shattered, but so, in some way, the illusion has, has, has met, is, is less. And we somehow banks managed to conjure up these vast sums of money, you know, via, I don't know, tarps and via quantitative easing, various different kinds. I mean, they're with different kinds yes. of impacts and so forth. But suddenly out of nowhere, you know, this money was conjured up uh, for yeah. these financial institutions. And what yeah. does that tell us about, and, and this is coming to something that we'll probably just talk about later, which is this question about financing the kinds of changes we need to get on a zero carbon or whatever, however you define that, and, and the ways we can do that we're constantly being told you know this is not affordable and that, that's a debate in itself but this question of I suppose in a way there's this idea not good debt and bad debt but you know that this idea of debt and we've seen some of the, the the adverse implications but then I suppose the possibilities of, of yeah. various kinds of multilateral or global credit post Bretton Woods kind of ideas that might yeah. there a lot a lot to bite off there but I'm just wondering if you just st st start maybe at this question of what, what what do you think the insights are as to how central banks behaved and, and what the lessons are there about you know being able to to create uh, credit for particular kinds of uh, initiatives well so the point is this that um 
the central banks in the crisis did what they had done since 1694, at least when the Bank of England was founded, which is that they engaged in monetary operations, which enabled them to purchase assets in exchange for liquidity, in exchange, if you like, for central bank money. But we did, this is a kind of state secret, and it became well known. And this word quantitative easing, which is just a new form of words for explaining operations that central banks have engaged in since the beginning of time, suddenly became sexy and interesting. And and that's been a really, really good thing. It's opened up the very secretive way in which the, uh, the financial system operates. And we all now are curious about where that £1,000 billion came from that Mervyn King was able to find to bail out the British banking system and the $16 trillion that's been found to bail out the global financial system. And I think that understanding is now very public and one of the reasons we have the rise of of what is called populism, uh, is is the anger of the public in understanding that that sector was bailed out by the central banks, but but the rest of us were punished for the financial crisis and we've been punished with austerity. So the point is this, is that if we were going to war tomorrow, Fergal, there would be no question that we certainly as at a domestic level, could raise the finance we need to 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 tackle to to t- undertake that battle, um, and we have done that, and we've had that resource since 1694, as I say. It becomes more difficult when we need to obtain resources from abroad, and we need to use uh, uh, we need to exchange our currency with somebody else's currency to purchase things that they may have that we might really need. Um, But on the whole, um, we can be self-sufficient financially because we have a a developed monetary system. Now, I'm one that rails against debt and I rail against the, the rate of interest being too high and exploitative. But I am one who believes that the the, the monetary system is a great public good. It, it's like our public sanitation system. We've developed a system to enable us to do what we can do, as Keynes famously argued. Um, and it's and it's enabled us to exchange and undertake transactions and to share our skills or share our skills or transact over our skills or, or our assets or whatever. And it, it's facilitated that. It, and I've spent a lot of time in low-income countries that don't have a monetary system. And above all, they don't have a monetary system underpinned by public institutions like the criminal justice system, which upholds the contract, the promise to pay, and so on. And therefore, they have no money. But in our country and in most OECD countries, we have well-developed monetary systems which enable us to finance that which we have to do. So there's no question that there's going to be enough money for us to transform the the climate and the ecosystem to rescue uh, uh, the life support systems, if you like, that are so important to our survival, to human survival, but also to nature's survival. And... um, the really important thing is this, is that we can raise the finance. It can be issued, you know, as we know, money is nothing more than a promise to pay. And and the bank's role is to act, if you like, as the upholders of that promise, um, 
to pay and to issue the documents that we need to guarantee that payment. And that becomes money, coins, uh, notes, uh, credit cards, debit cards, and so on, all of these things. If I hold up my debit card, it says to my uh, to the shopkeeper, you can trust Anne Pesford to pay because the bank – and knows about her and says that she can afford to pay this. She can she can uphold her promise, right? If I have a, a gold credit card, it says she can uphold a promise of up to £10,000. If I have a platinum one, apparently, I don't know about this, she can afford to pay up to a million pounds. So so what these, these symbols of our trustworthiness do is to enable us to pay uh, up to the, our capacity to do so. So there is no question that we can afford to to finance uh, those things. We are limited by our own finite resources. We may not have the intelligence, if you like, to to grow to to plant enough trees to uh, to reabsorb carbon. Uh, that that needs to happen in, for order for us to decide. We may not have the wit and the intelligence to do that. We may not have the muscle to do it. We may not have the trees to do it. We may not have the land to do it because we may have so damaged the land. But but the thing, the monetary system enables us to do that which we can do. So our, what and so what we have to do is work in within those finite limits. And if we work within those finite limits. We can finance what we need to do, but only with that recognition. Now, the thing about credit, and is wonderful, is it that, that with the use of credit, I can go out and do something straight away. I can go out and buy from a forester the trees, the small plants that I need to, to, to plant trees on my land. What's really important is that I should have the capacity to repay that loan at some point. And that that has to generate, so that investment, if you like, has to generate the income that enables me to repay. And the very best way of generating income is through employment. So if I use that investment to employ people to grow trees on my uh, park or estate or whatever it is, the good thing about that is that generates income. The money that I've raised goes into paying their salaries, and they then in turn uh, will spend that money, and they can spend that money on um, clothing themselves, feeding themselves, housing themselves, and so on. And that in turn generates income. So ultimately, the the, the, the credit system has to be in balance. We have to be able to and you get to the heart of, I, I think, an interesting question there in, in yeah. terms of um, <laughs> many touched on many interesting points there. I talked about the the, the rate of interest previously and a, a low rate of interest, uh, and yeah. I guess in some sense that can be seen as a return to uh, people who put their money in the bank. For example, they get a return, and 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 uh, you know in in that way, and it raises the question about uh, the kinds of returns i mean you, you seem um, yeah. uh, positive uh, optimistic that um, they are pretty eye eye boggling sums of money that you know it's, yeah. it's almost tens of trillions of, of dollars that we're, we're looking at uh, to invest in the various i, I guess ways that, that you can frame what needs to be done but this brings up a question if 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 uh, large sums of money are going to be uh, needed and are going to be provided through some yes. kind of credit intermediary or some interme- finance intermediary. It raised the question of, of, of what kind of returns you just mentioned yeah. that you know that it's got to work out, but that 
surely brings up this whole question of the commodification, increased commodification of nature. It just now starts to become something else that, you know, people starting to do their, you know, net present value on rivers and streams and lakes and and all that kind of thing. And is that not uh, very dangerous? No, it's it's not that. The real question is the returns on employment. So it's not the river or the forest that is going to um, is going to return the income. It's the people employed to work on that. And I'm very conscious that we can't have exponential growth and we can't consume. We can't have an economy which is aimed at satisfying our wants, but a sustainable green economy is going to have to satisfy our needs. And so the question then becomes, and one of our needs will be the need to be employed, the need to engage in meaningful activity and to do that in a social way. And and those who believe that very high levels of unemployment are a good thing for a green economy, in my view, are misguided. You've only to look at Egypt, where there are millions of people unemployed, and you'll see what that does to the ecosystem, it, it, you know, it's it, it's it's not good for the human race to to a be idle and b not be in social social interaction with others. So for me, employment is going to be the really key issue. And then the question is, what what does the employee need to survive? And what they will need is water. What they will need is 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 food and health, and and they will need education and they will need care uh, and 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 all of these things and these are things which don't necessarily these satisfy assets and they are services that don't necessarily have to exploit the ecosystem. You, you know, we don't have to dig for oil to provide care or to be creative or to educate. Or to all of the things that people need in order to survive. Well, I, I guess there's a lot of a lot of interesting points there. I mean, the question, I guess, is the service economy innately less carbon intensive, and is that you know is is that the case? And I I, I guess an interesting question. But I, I'm wondering. To what in what way is it different? You know, you have a group of people who are providing money for an investment, and they're looking at the kinds of economic returns. And all, I mean, m- most investments we we see now, you know, usually have some employment. I mean, not all of them, but you know, it's usually the case that there's employees as part of that picture, and and, and so forth. How how is it different in the sense that you know organizations or co- companies are profit making? They try and seek to you know lower their costs. Yeah, but I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not arguing that these should – first of all, credit is not the result of a group of investors holding some savings and then demanding return on that. Credit is something that is issued effortlessly by banks and also it's by the central bank. For me, the major investor in this has to be the public sector, has to be the government, and the government can invest at very, very low and even negative rates of interest, as we see already. So – you know, I don't. I'm not personally in favour of giving the power of investment to small groups of private investors who want high rates of return. Absolutely not. We're going to have to have high levels of public investment, and there's no reason why the government should not invest at very, very low rates of return. And and if anything at all. So there's. So you know. Um, 
it's it's a very different matter. So the principal will have to, the principal will have to be sorry, but the rate of interest has got to be very low on this. But the PFI experience we've had here, I mean, this goes against. I mean, I, 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 things change very yeah. quickly, don't they? And 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 the mood changes very quickly. But you know, the the mood has been uh, towards the government not investing, towards private yeah. investors taking up. I, I know there there, yeah. there are a lot more people talking and thinking about active estate and looking at the different ways and so yeah. forth. But the experience of PFI hasn't been a very uh, positive one in, 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 in the UK. Yeah. The kinds of horrific returns that some of these investors have got, you know, on the back of, of, of government guarantees and so forth. And yeah. as you say, they, actually, that you know, the government guarantee should mean that, the, you know, the costs are lower, that, you know, the yeah. risk is lower and so forth. So what kind of changes do you think are necessary well, for those ideas to, to really take hold? And are you optimistic? That's why, you know, the transformation of the economic and the financial financial system has to be radical. And that's why I want to urge green campaigners to understand that and to understand that the real task that we face uh, is not just of rescuing our ecosystem and doing all of the important work that we have to do there. The real task is to, if you like, reclaim our monetary system. You know, the point about the monetary system is that it is a great public good, but it has been captured and is now controlled by private authority. So for me, the very first task, and this is why I'm writing this book, the very first task is to address the monetary system and to regain public authority over the monetary system, to say, look, over periods of time, our civilization has developed and we've developed a system to operate in the interests of everybody in this country, not just the 1%. We want public control over the monetary system to be regained. Now, you know, that sounds like a terrifically difficult task. But I always give the example of Roosevelt in 1933, when the gold standard was dominant, when we had a globalized financial system and the bankers ran the world, and the bankers demanded that only they should run the world. And when Keynes suggested, for example, that the public sector could put up a bond to help rescue Germany from its crisis, the bankers said, no, we don't want a public bond, we want a private bond. And Keynes was defeated on that. And we got a second world war as a consequence. Roosevelt comes to power in 1933. And on the day of his inauguration, he announces that we that the United States is going to withdraw from the gold standard, and that the gold standard will no longer dominate, if you like, the American monetary system, that Wall Street will no longer be calling the shots. And he does this against the will of Wall Street. And it's a terrible and ugly fight. But he does it, he says, he demands that Wall Street hands over its gold to the Fed, that individuals hand over their gold, and that in future, the government will decide the value of the currency and and will manage the public finances in such a way as to ensure that the government can spend on uh, on dealing with unemployment, which was a very big crisis at the time. But Roosevelt also faced an ecological crisis, which was the Dust Bowl. They planted two billion trees. The, the argument is whether they planted two or three billion trees in order to deal with the crisis that was the Dust Bowl. And he mobilized uh, groups of young people, the conservation, a conservation army, if you like, to go out and to, to, grow, to plant these trees. So we've seen that in the past it has been possible to tackle the globalized financial system and to subordinate it to the role of servant to the real economy. And we can do it again. 
But the really important task for green campaigners is to understand that that is the thing we have to do first because we can't manage uh, the financing of the enormous task of, of ending our dependence on carbon until we do that. That's very interesting. How, 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 how can we do that? And to what extent are the, um, I don't, don't want to, to get this device of 1% and the rest and so forth. But insofar as, you know, the, the, you've been talking about the, the finance system being captured, you know, it's in the hands of particular uh, interests at the moment. You know, yeah. how, how will they, you know, they clearly are, don't have an interest in giving this up. How, how do you see that kind of plan? panning out well the point is this and i've written along and my book will be about this is that those private financiers depend heavily on taxpayers they for example just as an example public debt a government is the british government issues guilt or other governments issue bonds these bonds are incredibly valuable to the private finance sector they act as collateral they're more valuable they're more reliable they are safer than a london property there's not enough of them at the moment because of austerity and so there's a huge demand from the private sector for this but the private sector takes that public asset which is our debt backed by 30 million British taxpayers. That debt is only valuable because we pay our taxes, because we are reliable citizens and honourable citizens, and because our tax collection system, publicly managed, is well is well organized right and that gives them the private finance sector companies like blackrock and big big investment uh, asset management funds an asset called public debt which they then use as collateral and they then take that and leverage additional borrowing against it they say look i have in my bank you know a, a million pounds of, of british government gilts and that shows that i'm valuable and i'm safe and now i'd like to borrow another 2 million pounds I mean, this is small beer when you think about the sorts of money they're raising. So that collateral is something that is publicly created, publicly guaranteed by taxpayers. We have power over the system, but we don't know about it. It's a big secret. It's a big secret. The secret is that, oh, the public sector is bad, the private sector is clever and good, and these guys are saving us all. They've scooped up all of our pensions and they're saving them up there somewhere in the stratosphere and using and gambling with those pensions. Uh, and, and we don't know what they're doing because we've privatized all our pensions. They can't believe their luck. They're receiving all that money, playing, fooling around with it. I'm terribly worried that they are going to mess up our, our pensions uh, because of their reckless behavior out in the, what is known as the shadow banking sector. Now, that's all a big secret. We don't know about what's going on there. That's why it's called the shadow banking sector, right? And yet it cannot function without the support of taxpayers. And so my mission <laughs> is for people to understand that we have power over these great big lords of finance. And we can say to them, sorry, our central bank will not allow you to purchase a government guilt, a safe asset, uh, because we choose not to send it, lend it to you. We choose not to sell it to you. Sorry, but you But sorry, but your, our central bank, which is made up of, of civil servants and which is backed by the public, 
sorry, you cannot have access to our public resources. Sorry, you know, Mr. Goldman Sachs or Mr. BlackRock or whichever big investment management fund it is. Sorry, but you can't have access to and you cannot have guarantees from us either. We no longer will guarantee your safety, etc., etc. We have to understand that we have that leverage over the private finance sector and that we can demand changes. But the problem is, as long as the way the monetary system operates is kept secret, so long will we be impotent and they will be able to carry on exercising private authority over a great public good. So they have effectively privatized what is a social asset or public asset. How how well established do you think this idea is? And and, um, uh, yeah. Well, you know, the point is this, that it's not well established that economists don't talk about this. There is a group of heterodox economists who are beginning to open up this space into public debate, but they cannot get jobs in the universities. They cannot get a job at the Bank of England. They cannot get a job in the British Treasury or at the OBR because those are all dominated by people who fundamentally believe that private authority over these public institutions is the right way to go. Now, our politicians have the power to change that, but our politicians remain ignorant and don't seem to care. And that's why the public are mad as hell about what's happening. They they don't fully understand, of course, because it is complicated, but they do feel that there is something very badly wrong and there's some very big imbalances here which our politicians are not tackling. But if we wanted to, if our politicians had the courage, we could say to the private sector, you cannot have, you know, I mean, if you think about this, you, the taxpayer, guarantee RS, RBS, right? RBS has got public guarantees that prevent it from failing. Uh, we guarantee everybody's bank account to the tune of, is it £80,000 or some such number? And if if RBS did not have that taxpayer-backed guarantee, RBS would be bust. It would have been bust a long time ago. If it had been left entirely to the private sector without public guarantees, uh, RBS would not function. Many of the banks, none of the banks would be solvent. And we don't understand that's what we're doing. Right. And the, and the politicians don't talk about it very publicly. Indeed, they they're very happy to guarantee all this private sector activity at our expense and at, at great cost to the public. And the public understand there's something badly wrong here. They don't understand quite why. And I'm committed to ensuring we have much better understanding of this. Well, that's very important work. And and to what extent is this intimately connected? I mean, this is this is a project that's been unfolding for some time. Now yeah. we face uh, multiple environmental crises. What, in your mind, is the connection, I mean, in, in terms of timing, in terms of action, in terms of change, in terms of the mood? Well, you know, I mean... The action is for leadership is what I think is really important. I think we need, uh, as we did in the 1930s, intellectuals like John Maynard Keynes, but also politicians with a bit of spine, with a bit of courage. Um, And we lack that at the moment. We lack that because we've become disillusioned with politics too and we, we don't take politics seriously. But we, as a result, that benefits the private banking, private finance sector, because the less interest the public has in political processes, the more political power they effectively exercise. So I think it requires us to change. And, you know, uh, if you think about the 1930s, there was the 1929 crash, 
Everyone was stunned. Nobody knew what had happened. Everyone was impoverished by it. Farmers in the United States were committing suicide, burning down their farms. There was a sense of despair and and, and lack of understanding. And then, and then there was political leadership. Now, I'm not one for saying, you know, we need heroes to come to our rescue. But we do need wise people with courage. And that's the really important word, wise people with courage to understand we're running out of time. And we have very little time to deal with this climate breakdown, with the breakdown of Earth support systems. And um, we need people with courage to take on the finance sector and say, thou shalt bow to the interests of the people and the ecosystem or else we withdraw all those taxpayer guarantees. If we had politicians with that kind of spine, that kind of courage, then I think we could mobilize the finance quickly and we could get on with the really enormous task of transforming our economies away from their dependence on carbon. Thank you so much, Anne, for taking the time to talk about this uh, important work you're doing. And uh, I wish you the very best of success with it. Thank you, Fergal. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.